Section 32 of Pamela or Virtue Rewarded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pamela or Virtue Rewarded by Samuel Richardson. Section 32. Sunday Night. This day, as matters could not be ready for our appearance at a better place, we stayed at home and my dear master employed himself a good deal in his library, and I have been taken up pretty much, I hope as I ought to be, in thankfulness, prayer, and meditation in my newly presented closet. And I hope God will be pleased to give a blessing to me, for I have the pleasure to think I am not puffed up with this great alteration, and yet am I not wanting to look upon all these favors and blessings in the light wherein I ought to receive them, both at the hands of heaven, and my dear benefactor. We dined together with great pleasure, and I had, in every word and action, all the instances of kindness and affection that the most indulged heart could wish. He said he would return to his closet again, and at five o'clock would come and take a walk with me in the garden, and so retired as soon as he had dined, and I went up to mine. About six he was pleased to come up to me and said, now, my dear, I will attend you for a little walk in the garden, and I gave him my hand with great pleasure. This garden is much better cultivated than the Lincolnshire one, but that is larger and has nobler walks in it, and yet there is a pretty canal in this, and a fountain and cascade. We had a deal of sweet conversation as we walked, and, after we had taken a turn round, I bent towards the little garden, and when I came near the summer-house, took the opportunity to slip from him, and just whipped up the steps of this once frightful place, and kneeled down and said, I bless thee, O God, for my escapes, and for thy mercies. O let me always possess a grateful, humble heart. And I whipped down again and joined him, and he hardly missed me. Several of the neighboring gentry sent their compliments to him on his return, but not a word about his marriage particularly Mr. Arthur, Mr. Towers, Mr. Brooks, and Mr. Martin of the Grove. Monday. I had a good deal of employment in choosing patterns for my new clothes. He thought nothing too good, but I thought everything I saw was, and he was so kind to pick out six of the richest for me to choose three suits out of, saying, we would furnish ourselves with more in town when we went thither. One was white, flowered with silver most richly, and he was pleased to say that, as I was a bride, I should make my appearance in that the following Sunday. And so we shall have in two or three days, from several places, nothing but mantua-makers and tailors at work. Bless me! What a chargeable and what a worthless hussy I am to the dear gentleman! But his fortune and station require a great deal of it and his value for me will not let him do less than if he had married a fortune equal to his own. And then, as he says, it would be a reflection upon him if he did. And so I doubt it will be as it is. For either way the world will have something to say. He made me also choose some very fine laces and linen, and was sent a message on purpose with his orders to hasten all down what can be done in town as the millinery matters, etc., to be completed there, and sent by particular messengers as done. 
all to be here and finished by Saturday afternoon without fail. I sent away John this morning, with some more of my papers to you, and with the few he will give you separate. My desire is that you will send me all the papers you have done with, that I may keep my word with Lady Davers, to beg the continuance of your prayers and blessings, to hope you will give me your answer about my dear benefactor's proposal of the Kentish farm, to beg you to buy two suits of clothes each, of the finest cloth for you, my dear father, and of a creditable silk for you, my dear mother, and good linen, and everything answerable, and that you will, as my best friend bid me say, let us see you here as soon as possible, and he will have his chariot come for you, and you will tell John the day. Oh, how I long to see you both, my dear good parents, and to share with you my felicities. You will have, I'm sure, the goodness to go to all your creditors, which are chiefly those of my poor unhappy brothers, and get an account of all you are bound for. And every one shall be paid to the utmost farthing, and interest besides, though some of them have been very cruel and unrelenting. But they are entitled to their own, and shall be thankfully paid. Now I think of it, John shall take my papers down to this place, that you may have something to amuse you of your dear child's, instead of those you part with and I will continue writing till I am settled and you are determined, and then I shall apply myself to the duties of the family in order to become as useful to my dear benefactor as my small abilities will let me. If you think a couple of guineas will be of use to Mrs. Mumford, who I doubt has not much aforehand, pray give them to her from me, and I will return them to you, as for a pair of gloves on my nuptials and look through your poor acquaintances and neighbors, and let me have a list of such honest industrious poor as may be true objects of charity, and have no other assistance, particularly such as are blind, lame, or sickly, with their several cases, and also such poor families and housekeepers as are reduced by misfortunes, as ours was, and where a great number of children may keep them from rising to a state of tolerable comfort." and I will choose as well as I can, for I long to be making a beginning, with the kind quarterly benevolence my dear good benefactor has bestowed upon me for such good purposes. I am resolved to keep account of all these matters, and Mr. Longman has already furnished me with a vellum book of white paper, some sides of which I hope soon to fill with the names of proper objects, and though my dear master has given me all this without account, yet shall he see, but nobody else, how I lay it out, from quarter to quarter, and I will, if any be left, carry it on, like an accomptant, to the next quarter, and strike a balance four times a year, and a general balance at every year's end. And I have written in it, humble returns for divine mercies, and locked it up safe in my newly presented cabinet." I intend to let Lady Davers see no farther of my papers, than to her own angry letter to her brother, for I would not have her see my reflections upon it, and she'll know down to that place all that's necessary for her curiosity as to my sufferings, and the stratagems used against me, and the honest part I have been enabled to act. And I hope when she has read them all, she will be quite reconciled, for she will see it is all God Almighty's doings, and that a gentleman of his parts and knowledge was not to be drawn in by such a poor young body as me. 
I will detain John no longer. He will tell you to read this last part first, and while he stays. And so, with my humble duty to you both, and my dear Mr. B.'s kind remembrance, I rest, your ever-dutiful and gratefully happy daughter. Wednesday evening. Honored father and mother, I will now proceed with my journal. On Tuesday morning, my dear sir rode out, and brought with him to dinner Mr. Martin of the Grove, and Mr. Arthur and Mr. Brooks, and one Mr. Chambers, and he stepped up to me, and said he had rode out too far to return to breakfast, but he had brought with him some of his old acquaintance to dine with me. Are you sorry for it, Pamela? said he. I remembered his lessons, and said, No, sure, sir, I cannot be angry at anything you are pleased to do. Said he, You know Mr. Martin's character, and have severely censured him in one of your letters, as one of my brother rakes, and for his three lyings in. He then gave me the following account, how he came to bring them. Said he, I met them all at Mr. Arthur's, and his lady asked me if I was really married. I said, yes, really. And to whom? said Mr. Martin. Why, replied I bluntly, to my mother's waiting-maid. They could not tell what to say to me hereupon, and looked upon one another, and I saw I had spoiled a jest from each. Mrs. Arthur said, You have indeed, sir, a charming creature as ever I saw, and she has mighty good luck. Aye, said I, and so have I, but I shall say the less, because a man never did anything of this nature that he did not think he ought, if it were but in policy, to make the best of it. Nay, said Mr. Arthur, if you have sinned it is with your eyes open, for you know the world as well as any gentleman of your years in it. Why really, gentlemen, said I, I should be glad to please all my friends, but I can't expect, till they know my motives and inducements, that it will be so immediately. But I do assure you I am exceedingly pleased myself, and that you know is most to the purpose. Said Mr. Brooks, I have heard my wife praise your spouse, that is, so much for person and beauty, that I wanted to see her of all things. Why, replied I, if you'll all go and take a dinner with me, you shall see her with all my heart. And Mrs. Arthur, will you bear us company? No, indeed, sir, said she. What, I'll warrant, my wife will not be able to reconcile you to my mother's waiting-maid, is not that it? Tell truth, Mrs. Arthur. Nay, said she, I shan't be backward to pay your spouse a visit in company of the neighboring ladies, but for one single woman to go on such a sudden motion, too, with so many gentlemen, is not right. But that need not hinder you, gentlemen. So, said he, the rest sent that they should not dine at home, and they and Mr. Chambers, a gentleman lately settled in these parts, one and all came with me. And so, my dear, concluded he, when you make your appearance next Sunday, you're sure of a party in your favor, for all that see you must esteem you. He went to them, and when I came down to dinner, he was pleased to take me by the hand at my entrance into the parlor, and said, My dear, I have brought some of my good neighbors to dine with you. I said, You are very good, sir. My dear, this gentleman is Mr. Chambers, and so he presented every one to me, 
and they saluted me and wished us both joy. I, for my part, said Mr. Brooks, wish you joy most heartily. My wife told me a good deal of the beauties of your person, but I did not think we had such a flower in our country. Sir, said I, your lady is very partial to me, and you are so polite a gentleman that you will not contradict your good lady. I'll assure you, madam, returned he, you have not hit the matter at all, for we contradict one another twice or thrice a day, but the devil's end if we are not agreed in so clear a case. Said Mr. Martin, Mr. Brooks says very true, madam, in both respects, meaning his wife's and his own contradiction to one another, as well as in my favor. For, added he, they have been married some years. As I had not the best opinion of this gentleman, nor his jest, I said, I am almost sorry, sir, for the gentleman's jest upon himself and his lady, but I think it should have relieved him from a greater jest, your pleasant confirmation of it. But still the reason you give that it may be so, I hope, is the reason that may be given that it is not so, to wit, that they have been married some years. Said Mr. Arthur, Mr. Martin, I think the lady has very handsomely reproved you. I think so, too, said Mr. Chambers, and it was but a very indifferent compliment to a bride. Said Mr. Martin, compliment or not, gentlemen, I have never seen a matrimony of any time standing that it was not so, little or much, but I dare say it will never be so here. To be sure, sir, said I, if it was, I must be the ungratefulest person in the world, because I am the most obliged person in it. That notion, said Mr. Arthur, is so excellent that it gives a moral certainty it never can. Sir, said Mr. Brooks to my dear master, softly, you have a most accomplished lady, I do assure you, as well in her behavior and wit as in her person, call her what you please. Why, my dear friend, said my master, I must tell you, as I have said before now, that her person made me her lover, but her mind made her my wife. The first course coming in, my dear sir led me himself to my place, and set Mr. Chambers as the greatest stranger at my right hand, and Mr. Brooks at my left, and Mr. Arthur was pleased to observe, much to my advantage, on the ease and freedom with which I behaved myself and helped them, and said, he would bring his lady to be a witness, and a learner both, of my manners. I said, I should be proud of any honor Mrs. Arthur would vouchsafe to do me, and if once I could promise myself the opportunity of his good lady's example, and those of the other gentlemen present, I should have the greater opinion of my worthiness to sit in the place I filled at present with much insufficiency. Mr. Arthur drank to my health and happiness, and said, my wife told your spouse, madam, you had very good luck in such a husband, but I now see who has the best of it. Said Mr. Brooks, Come, come, let's make no compliments, for the plain truth of the matter is, our good neighbor's generosity and judgment have met with so equal a match in his lady's beauty and merit, that I know not which has the best luck. But may you be both long happy together, say I and so he drank a glass of wine. My best friend, who always takes delight to have me praised, seemed much pleased with our conversation, 
and he said the kindest, tenderest, and most respectful things in the world to me, insomuch that the rough Mr. Martin said, Did you ever think our good friend here, who used to ridicule matrimony so much, would have made so complacent a husband? How long do you intend, sir, that this shall hold? As long as my good girl deserves it, said he, and that, I hope, will be for ever. But, continued the kind gentleman, you need not wonder I have changed my mind as to wedlock, for I never expected to meet with one whose behavior and sweetness of temper were so well adapted to make me happy. After dinner, and having drank good healths to each of their ladies, I withdrew, and they sat and drank two bottles of claret apiece, and were very merry, and went away full of my praises, and vowing to bring their ladies to see me. John, having brought me your kind letter, my dear father, I told my good master, after his friends were gone, how gratefully you received his generous intentions as to the Kentish farm, and promised your best endeavors to serve him in that estate, and that you hoped your industry and care would be so well employed in it, that you should be very little troublesome to him. As to the liberal manner in which he had intended to add to a provision, that of itself exceeded all you wished. He was very well pleased with your cheerful acceptance of it. I am glad your engagements in the world lie in so small a compass. As soon as you have gotten an account of them exactly, you will be pleased to send it me with the list of the poor folks you are so kind to promise to procure me. I think, as my dear master is so generous, you should account nothing that is plain too good. Pray don't be afraid of laying out upon yourselves. My dear sir intends you shall not, when you come to us, return to your old abode, but stay with us till you set out for Kent, and so you must dispose of yourselves accordingly. And I hope, my dear father, you have quite left off all slavish business. As Farmer Jones has been kind to you, as I have heard you say, pray, when you take leave of them, present them with three guineas worth of good books, such as a family Bible, a common prayer, a whole duty of man, or any other you think will be acceptable, for they live a great way from church, and in winter the ways from their farm thither are impassable. He has brought me my papers safe, and I will send them to Lady Davers the first opportunity, down to the place I mentioned in my last. My dear Mr. B. just now tells me that he will carry me in the morning, a little airing, about ten miles off, in his chariot and four, to breakfast at a farmhouse noted for a fine dairy, and where, now and then, the neighboring gentry of both sexes resort for that purpose. Thursday. We set out at about half an hour after six accordingly, and driving pretty smartly, got at this truly neat house at half an hour after eight, and I was much pleased with the neatness of the good woman and her daughter and maid, and he was so good as to say he would now and then take a turn with me to the same place, and on the same occasion, as I seemed to like it, for it would be a pretty exercise, and procure us appetites to our breakfasts, as well as our return would to our dinners. But I find this was not, though a very good reason, the only one for which he gave me this agreeable airing, as I shall acquaint you. We were prettily received and entertained here, and an elegancy ran through everything, persons as well as furniture, yet all plain, 
and my master said to the good housewife, Do your young boarding-school ladies still at times continue their visits to you, Mrs. Dobson? Yes, sir, said she. I expect three or four of them every minute. There is, my dear, said he, within three miles of this farm, a very good boarding-school for ladies. The governess of it keeps a chaise and pair, which is to be made a double chaise at pleasure. And in summer-time, when the misses perform their tasks to satisfaction, she favors them with an airing to this place, three or four at a time. And after they have breakfasted, they are carried back. And this serves both for a reward and for exercise. And the misses who have this favor are not a little proud of it, and it brings them forward in their respective tasks. A very good method, sir, said I. And just as we were talking, the chaise came in with four misses, all pretty much of a size, and a maid-servant to attend them. They were shown another little neat apartment that went through ours, and made their honors very prettily as they passed by us. I went into the room to them, and asked them questions about their work and their lessons, and what they had done to deserve such a fine airing and breakfasting, and they all answered me very prettily. And pray, little ladies, said I, what may I call your names? One was called Miss Burdoff, one Miss Nugent, one Miss Booth, and the fourth Miss Goodwin. I don't know which, said I, is the prettiest, but you are all best, my little dears, and you have a very good governess to indulge you with such a fine airing and such delicate cream and bread and butter. I hope you think so, too. My master came in, and I had no mistrust in the world, and he kissed each of them, but looked more wishfully on Miss Goodwin than on any of the others, but I thought nothing just then. Had she been called Miss Godfrey, I had hit upon it in a trice. When we went from them, he said, Which do you think the prettiest of all those misses? Really, sir, said I, it is very hard to say. Miss Booth is a pretty brown girl and has a fine eye. Miss Burdorf has a great deal of sweetness in her countenance, but is not so regularly featured. Miss Nugent is very fair, and Miss Goodwin has a fine black eye, and is besides, I think, the genteelest shaped child, but they are all pretty. The maid led them into the garden to show them the beehives, and Miss Goodwin made a particular fine curtsy to my master, and I said, I believe Miss knows you, sir, and, taking her by the hand, I said, Do you know this gentleman, my pretty dear? Yes, madame, said she, it is my own dear uncle. I clasped her in my arms. Oh, why did you not tell me, sir, said I, that you had a niece among these little ladies? And I kissed her, and away she tripped after the others. But pray, sir, said I, how can this be? You have no sister nor brother but Lady Davers. How can this be? He smiled, and then I said, Oh, my dearest sir, tell me now the truth. Does not this pretty miss stand in a nearer relation to you than as a niece? I know she does. I know she does. And I embraced him as he stood. Tis even so, my dear, replied he. And you remember my sister's good-natured hint of Miss Sally Godfrey? I do well, sir, said I. But this is Miss Goodwin. Her mother chose that name for her, said he, 
because she should not be called by her own. Well, said I, excuse me, sir, I must go and have a little prattle with her. I'll send for her in again, replied he, and in she came in a moment. I took her in my arms and said, Oh, my charming dear, will you love me? Will you let me be your aunt? Yes, madam, answered she, with all my heart, and I will love you dearly, but I mustn't love my uncle. Why so? said he. Because, replied she, you would not speak to me at first, and because you would not let me call you uncle, for it seemed she was bid not, that I might not guess at her presently. And yet, said the pretty dear, I had not seen you a great while, so I hadn't. Well, Pamela, said he, now can you allow me to love this little innocent? Allow you, sir, replied I, you would be very barbarous if you did not, and I should be more so, if I did not further it all I could, and love the little lamb myself, for your sake and for her own sake, and in compassion to her poor mother, though unknown to me and tears stood in my eyes. Said he, Why, my love, are your words so kind, and your countenance so sad? I drew to the window from the child, and said, Sad it is not, sir, but I have a strange grief and pleasure mingled at once in my breast on this occasion. It is indeed a twofold grief, and a twofold pleasure. As how, my dear? said he. Why, sir, replied I, I cannot help being grieved for the poor mother of this sweet babe, to think, if she be living, that she must call her chiefest delight her shame, if she be no more, that she must have had such remorse on her poor mind, when she came to leave the world, and her little babe. And, in the second place, I grieve that it must be thought a kindness to the dear little soul, not to let her know how near the dearest relation she has in the world is to her. Forgive me, dear sir, I say not this to reproach you in the least, indeed I don't, and I have a twofold cause of joy. First, that I have had the grace to escape the like unhappiness with this poor gentlewoman, and second, that this discovery has given me an opportunity to show the sincerity of my grateful affection for you, sir, in the love I will always express to this dear child. And then I stepped to her again and kissed her and said, Join with me, my pretty love, to beg your dear uncle to let you come and live with your new aunt. Indeed, my little precious, I'll love you dearly. Will you, sir? said the little charmer. Will you let me go and live with my aunt? You are very good, my Pamela, said he, and I have not once been deceived in the hopes my fond heart has entertained of your prudence. But will you, sir? said I. Will you grant me this favor? I shall most certainly love the little charmer, and all I am capable of doing for her, both by example and affection, shall most cordially be done. My dearest sir, added I, oblige me in this thing. I think already my heart is set upon it. What a sweet employment and companionship shall I have? We'll talk of this some other time, replied he, but I must in prudence, put some bounds to your amiable generosity. I had always intended to surprise you into this discovery, but my sister led the way to it, out of a poorness in her spite that I could not brook. 
and though you have pleased me beyond expression in your behavior on this occasion, yet I can't say that you have gone much beyond my expectations, for I have such a high opinion of you, that I think nothing could have shaken it, but a contrary conduct to this you have expressed on so tender a circumstance. Well, sir, said the dear little miss, then you will not let me go home with my aunt, will you? I am sure she will love me. When you break up next, my dear, said he, if you are a good girl, you shall pay your new aunt a visit. She made a low curtsy. Thank you, sir, answered she. Yes, my dear, said I, and I will get you some fine things against the time. I would have brought you some now, had I known I should have seen my pretty love. Thank you, madame, returned she. How old, sir, said I, is miss? Between six and seven, answered he. Was she ever, sir, said I, at your house? My sister, replied he, carried her hither once as a dear relation of her lord's. I remember, sir, said I, a little miss, and Mrs. Jervis and I took her to be a relation of Lord Davers. My sister, returned he, knew the whole secret from the beginning, and it made her a great merit with me that she kept it from the knowledge of my father, who was then living, and of my mother to her dying day, though she descended so low in her rage to hint the matter to you. The little misses took their leaves soon after, and I know not how, but I am strangely affected with this dear child. I wish he would be so good as to let me have her home. It would be a great pleasure to have such a fine opportunity, obliged as I am, to show my love for himself in my fondness for his dear miss. As we came home together in the chariot, he gave me the following particulars of this affair, additional to what he had before mentioned. That this lady was of a good family, and the flower of it, but that her mother was a person of great art and address, and not altogether so nice in the particular between himself and miss, as she ought to have been. That, particularly, when she had reason to find him unsettled and wild, and her daughter in more danger from him than he was from her, yet she encouraged their privacies, and even at last, when she had reason to apprehend from their being surprised together, in a way not so creditable to the lady, that she was far from forbidding their private meetings on the contrary that, on a certain time, she had set one that had formerly been her footman, and a half-pay officer, her relation, to watch an opportunity, and to frighten him into a marriage with the lady, that, accordingly, when they had surprised him in her chamber, just as he had been let in, they drew their swords upon him, and threatened instantly to kill him, if he did not propose marriage on the spot, and that they had a parson ready below stairs, as he found afterwards, that then he suspected, from some strong circumstances, that Miss was in the plot, which so enraged him with their menaces together, that he drew and stood upon his defense, and was so much in earnest, that the man he pushed into the arm and disabled, and pressing prettily forward upon the other, as he retreated, and rushed in upon him near the top of the stairs, and pushed him down one pair, and he was much hurt by the fall. Not but that, he said, he might have paid for his rashness, 
but that the business of his antagonists was rather to frighten than to kill him. That, upon this, in the sight of the old lady, the parson she had provided, and her other daughters, he went out of their house with bitter execrations against them all. That after this, designing to break off all correspondence with the whole family, and miss too, she found means to engage him to give her a meeting at Woodstock, in order to clear herself. That, poor lady, she was there obliged, naughty creature as he was, to make herself quite guilty of a worse fault, in order to clear herself of a lighter. That they afterwards met at Godstow often, at Woodstock, and every neighboring place to Oxford, where he was then studying, as it proved guilty lessons instead of improving ones till at last the effect of their frequent interviews grew too obvious to be concealed, that the young lady then, when she was not fit to be seen for the credit of the family, was confined, and all manner of means were used to induce him to marry her, that, finding nothing would do, they at last resolved to complain to his father and mother, but that he made his sister acquainted with the matter, who then happened to be at home, and, by her management and spirit, their intentions of that sort were frustrated, and, seeing no hopes, they agreed to Lady Davers's proposals, and sent poor Miss down to Marlborough, where, at her expense, which he answered to her again, she was provided for and privately lay in, that Lady Davers took upon herself the care of the little one, till it came to be fit to be put to the boarding-school, where it now is and that he had settled upon the dear little miss such a sum of money as the interest of it would handsomely provide for her, and the principal would be a tolerable fortune fit for a gentlewoman when she came to be marriageable. And this, my dear, said he, is the story in brief. And I do assure you, Pamela, added he, I am far from making a boast of or taking pride in this affair. But since it has happened, I can't say but I wish the poor child to live and be happy, and I must endeavor to make her so. Sir, said I, to be sure you should, and I shall take a very great pride to contribute to the dear little soul's felicity, if you will permit me to have her home. But, added I, does Miss know anything who are her father and mother? I wanted him to say if the poor lady was living or dead. No, answered he, her governess has been told, by my sister, that she is the daughter of a gentleman and his lady, who are related at a distance to Lord Davers, and now live in Jamaica. And she calls me uncle, only because I am the brother to Lady Davers, whom she calls aunt, and who is very fond of her, as is also my lord, who knows the whole matter. And they have her at all her little school recesses, at their house, and are very kind to her. I believe, added he, the truth of the matter is very little known or suspected, for, as her mother is of no mean family, her friends endeavor to keep it secret as much as I, and Lady Davers, till her wrath boiled over t'other day, has managed the matter very dexterously and kindly. The words, mother is of no mean family, gave me not to doubt the poor lady was living, and I said, but how, sir, can the dear Mrs. poor mother be content to deny herself the enjoyment of so sweet a child? Ah, Pamela, replied he, now you come in. I see you want to know what's become of the poor mother. Tis natural enough you should. 
but I was willing to see how the little suspense would operate upon you. Dear sir, said I. Nay, replied he, tis very natural, my dear. I think you have had a great deal of patience, and are come at this question so fairly that you deserve to be answered. You must know, then, there is some foundation for saying that her mother at least lives in Jamaica, for there she does live, and very happily too. For I must observe that she suffered so much in childbed that nobody expected her life, and this, when she was up, made such an impression upon her that she dreaded nothing so much as the thoughts of returning to her former fault. And, to say the truth, I had intended to make her a visit as soon as her month was well up and so, unknown to me, she engaged herself to go to Jamaica with two young ladies who were born there and were returning to their friends after they had been four years in England for their education, and, recommending to me, by a very moving letter, her little baby, and that I would not suffer it to be called by her name, but Goodwin, that her shame might be the less known, for hers and her family's sake she got her friends to assign her five hundred pounds in full of all her demands upon her family, and went up to London and embarked with her companions at Gravesend, and so sailed to Jamaica, where she is since well and happily married, passing to her husband for a young widow with one daughter, which her husband's friends take care of and provide for. And so you see, Pamela, that in the whole story on both sides the truth is as much preserved as possible." poor lady said i how her story moves me i am glad she is so happy at last and my dear said he are you not glad she is so far off too as to that sir said i i cannot be sorry to be sure as she is so happy which she could not have been here for sir i doubt you would have proceeded with your temptations if she had not gone and it showed she was much in earnest to be good, that she could leave her native country, leave all her relations, leave you, whom she so well loved, leave her dear baby, and try a new fortune in a new world, among quite strangers, and hazard the seas, and all to preserve herself from further guiltiness. Indeed, indeed, sir, said I, I bleed for what her distresses must be. In this case I am grieved for her poor mind's remorse, through her childbed terrors, which could have so great and so worthy an effect upon her afterwards. And I honor her resolution, and would rank such a returning dear lady in the class of those who are most virtuous, and doubt not God Almighty's mercy to her, and that her present happiness is the result of his gracious providence, blessing her penitence and reformation. But, sir, said I, did you not once see the poor lady after her lying in? I did not believe her so much in earnest, answered he, and I went down to Marlborough, and heard she was gone from thence to Calne. I went to Calne, and heard she was gone to Reading, to her relations there. Thither I went, and heard she was gone to Oxford. I followed, and there she was, but I could not see her. She at last received a letter from me, begging a meeting with her, for I found her departure with the ladies was resolved on, and that she was with her friends, only to take leave of them, and receive her agreed-on portion. And she appointed the Saturday following, and that was Wednesday, to give me a meeting at the old place at Woodstock. Then, added he, 
I thought I was sure of her, and doubted not I should spoil her intended voyage. I set out on Thursday to Gloucester, on a party of pleasure, and on Saturday I went to the place appointed at Woodstock. But when I came thither, I found a letter instead of my lady, and when I opened it, it was to beg my pardon for deceiving me, expressing her concern for her past fault, her affection for me, and the apprehension she had that she should be unable to keep her good resolves if she met me, that she had set out on the Thursday for her embarkation, for that she feared nothing else could save her, and had appointed this meeting on Saturday at the place of her former guilt, that I might be suitably impressed upon the occasion, and pity and allow for her, and that she might get three or four days start of me and be quite out of my reach. She recommended again, as upon the spot where the poor little one owed its beginning, my tenderness to it for her sake, and that was all she had to request of me, she said, but would not forget to pray for me in all her own dangers, and in every difficulty she was going to encounter. I wept at this moving tale. And did not this make a deep impression upon you, sir? said I. Surely such an affecting lesson as this, on the very guilty spot, too, I admire the dear lady's pious contrivance, must have had a great effect upon you. One would have thought, sir, it was enough to reclaim you for ever. All your naughty purposes, I make no doubt, were quite changed? Why, my dear, said he, I was much moved, you may be sure, when I came to reflect, but at first I was so assured of being a successful tempter and spoiling her voyage that I was vexed and much out of humor. But when I came to reflect, as I said, I was quite overcome with this insistence of her prudence, her penitence, and her resolution, and more admired her than I ever had done. Yet I could not bear she should so escape me neither." so much overcome me, as it were, in an heroical bravery, and I hastened away and got a bill of credit of Lord Davers upon his banker in London for five hundred pounds, and set out for that place, having called at Oxford, and got what light I could, as to where I might hear of her there. When I arrived in town, which was not till Monday morning, I went to a place called Crosby Square, where the friends of the two ladies lived. She had set out in the flying coach on Tuesday, got to the two ladies that very night, and, on Saturday, had set out with them for Gravesend, much about the time I was expecting her at Woodstock. You may suppose that I was much affected, my dear, with this. However, I got my bill of credit converted into money, and I set out with my servant on Monday afternoon, and reached Gravesend that night. And there I understood that she and the two ladies had gone on board from the very inn I put up at in the morning, and the ship waited only for the wind, which then was turning about in its favor. I got a boat directly, and went on board the ship, and asked for Mrs. Godfrey. But judge you, my dear Pamela, her surprise and confusion when she saw me. She had liked to have fainted away. I offered any money to put off the sailing till next day, but it would not be complied with and fain would I have got her on shore, and promised to attend her, if she would go over land, to any part of England the ship would touch at, but she was immovable. Every one concluded me her humble servant, and were touched at the moving interview, the young ladies and their female attendants especially, 
with great difficulty upon my solemn assurances of honour she trusted herself with me in one of the cabins and there i tried what i could to prevail upon her to quit her purpose but all in vain she said i had made her quite unhappy by this interview she had difficulties enough upon her mind before but now i had embittered all her voyage and given her the deepest distress i could prevail upon her but for one favour and that with the greatest reluctance which was to accept of the five hundred pounds as a present from me and she promised at my earnest desire to draw upon me for a greater sum as a person that had her effects in my hands when she arrived if she should find it convenient for her in short this was all the favour i could procure for she would not promise so much as to correspond with me and was determined on going and i believe if i would have married her which yet i had not in my head she would not have deviated from her purpose but how sir said i did you part i would have sailed with her answered he and been landed at the first port in england or ireland i cared not which they should put in at but she was too full of apprehensions to admit it and the rough fellow of the master captain they called him but in my mind i could have thrown him overboard would not stay a moment the wind and tide being quite fair and was very urgent with me to go ashore or to go the voyage and being impetuous in my temper spoiled you know my dear by my mother and not used to control i thought it very strange that wind or tide or anything else should be preferred to me and my money but so it was i was forced to go and so took leave of the ladies and the other passengers wished them a good voyage gave five guineas among the ship's crew to be good to the ladies and took such a leave as you may better imagine than i express she recommended once more to me the dear guest as she called her the ladies being present and thanked me for all these instances of my regard which she said would leave a strong impression on her mind and at parting she threw her arms about my neck and we took such a leave as affected every one present men as well as ladies so with a truly heavy heart i went down the ship's side to my boat and stood up in it looking at her as long as i could see her and she at me with her handkerchief at her eyes and then i gazed at the ship till and after i had landed as long as i could discern the least appearance of it for she was under sail in a manner when i left her and so i returned highly disturbed to my inn i went to bed but rested not returned to london the next morning and set out that afternoon again for the country and so much my dear for poor sally godfrey she sends i understand by all opportunities with the knowledge of her husband to learn how her child by her first husband does and has the satisfaction to know she is happily provided for and about half a year ago her spouse sent a little negro boy of about ten years old as a present to wait upon her but he was taken ill of the smallpox and died in a month after he was landed sure sir said i your generous mind must have been long affected with this melancholy case and all its circumstances it hung upon me indeed some time said he but i was full of spirit and inconsideration i went soon after to travel 
a hundred new objects danced before my eyes and kept reflection from me and you see i had five or six years afterwards and even before that so thoroughly lost all the impressions you talk of that i doubted not to make my pamela change her name without either act of parliament or wedlock and be sally godfrey the second oh you dear naughty man said i this seems but too true but i bless god that it is not so i bless god for your reformation and that for your own dear sake as well as mine well my dear said he and i bless god for it too i do most sincerely and tis my greater pleasure because i have as i hoped seen my error so early and that with such a stock of youth and health on my side in all appearance i can truly abhor my past liberties and pity poor sally godfrey from the same motives that i admire my pamela's virtues and resolve to make myself as worthy of them as possible and i will hope my dear your prayers for my pardon and my perseverance will be of no small efficacy on this occasion these agreeable reflections on this melancholy but instructive story brought us in view of his own house and we alighted and took a walk in the garden till dinner was ready and now we are so busy about making ready for our appearance that i shall hardly have time to write till that be over end of section thirty two